This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Paula Poundstone has done stand-up comedy for nearly 45 years. She's the host of the comedy podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. And she's also a regular panelist on NPR's comedy news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Today, she joins us for the hour, and like her comedy, we kind of touched on everything. We get into her signature stand-up style, never shying away from engaging the audience and making each show a little unique. I started by asking her how her stand-up has changed over the years, both in terms of content and audience. All right, Paula, I wanna I want to start this conversation um, really to ask you about how has your shows and your audience changed over time? Because you've had you have forty plus years of, of material. How has that changed? Well, uh, I, I, I'll tell you the biggest change that I've noticed in the audience over it, it, over I think oh, I think it's been forty five years maybe of telling my little jokes. Um, the biggest change that I've noticed has been within the last several years, hmm. uh, and I'll bet I'm not the only comic who would say that. Um, uh, I used to have a, a crowd of more uh, mix politically. Um, and uh, now I have a more sort of homogenized crowd politically, which I don't require. Uh, I don't particularly like, uh, but so be it. Um, there was a little period a few years back now, and I can't remember if it was during the 2016 election uh, or was it just ooh, excuse me, was it just after Trump got elected? I can't remember anymore. But there was a period where there were these very sort of it was occasional. It wasn't every night by any means, but occasionally and for the first time in my career uh, where there would be audience members that would demonstrably get up and march out of the show. Uh, it felt very pre-planned often when it happened. And what's interesting is when I look back on it, I realized there were a bunch of other comics having the same problem. So I think it was probably somewhat orchestrated. Fortunately, that's gone away. That always interests me because I feel like you would go into a certain show knowing what to expect to a certain extent. So when people walk out, I always feel like, did you not see that coming? Does that go through your yeah, head at all? You know, it's funny. I used to do jokes about Reagan a thousand years ago. And although probably the majority of my crowd, uh, um, probably the majority was uh, were Democrats. Um, I say the majority, but there were plenty of Republicans in that room. And no one ever felt the need to, you know, get up and storm out. It just wasn't that climate. Mm -hmm. It was like you could make a joke and that was fine back then. And that really has, you know, changed. I hope it doesn't stay that way forever. You know, it's interesting because last night I got a, a tweet from somebody on goofy, silly, stupid Twitter, um, which I spend way too much time on. Uh, but somebody tweeted me. They said, I, I was at your show in Turlock, California. And they said, you, something about you handled those right wingers that now, First of all, I had a fantastic time with the audience in Turlock. I had a great time. I think that it is overall uh, a right wing, uh, uh, you know, probably a, a, a red area. Uh, 
I had zero trouble. I don't recall anybody saying anything, you know, combative. Uh, so I don't know where that person got that idea from, except for I think they came into the room feeling that I didn't. Um, I, I had a great time. Listen, I one time worked the village, in fact, twice, the villages in Florida and both times had a wonderful time. Uh, so it is possible. Um, I just think that people feel uh, I just think that the, the, the audience members sometimes feel that they need to be more uh, on edge than is necessary. Um, I find that my favorite part of any show is just talking to individual audience members. Um, I, I do the time honored. Where are you from? What do you do for a living? Right. I never ask anyone about their political leanings. Right. That's not, you know, uh, A, because I don't care. <laughs> but uh, I find that if you get talking to anybody for more than a few seconds, they're just delightful. Mm. Well, funny story. Well, not that funny, maybe, but I've actually been to the Ronald Reagan Ranch in California. So um, with Reagan being so early in this conversation, I just didn't expect to drop that fun fact. So... <laughs> I was at, oh, oh, years ago, I used to write for Mother Jones magazine. I used to do um, the, like the back page. And it was, um, I would answer questions, uh, by people writing questions, and I would answer the questions. And the real, uh, the real joy of it was the journey that I took to get the answer. Um, for example, one time somebody wrote to me, why do the French eat snails? And so um, I decided I would, talk to Julia Childs. And uh, I can't remember anymore if this was sort of set up publicist to publicist, the conversation. It probably was, um, because I can't imagine she would sort of use her time any other way. But we did make contact, you know, so I think she probably was expecting my call and maybe even have known already the question. That's a big possibility. But anyways, what I remember is... So years ago, you know, I dial the phone number I've been given to call you, Julie Childs, and um, I get her on the phone. Hey, it's Paul Pelser from Mother Jones Magazine. And I say, uh, Ms. Childs, um, uh, why do the French eat snails? And she said, because they're delicious, <laughs> which has to be like if you were to take Julie Childs and put her in like a saucepan and, and boil her down to one phrase, it would be that. I can't imagine her saying anything else, well, actually. I'm not I'm not suggesting that we boil anyone. No. Uh, by the way, and certainly, well, you know, she's no longer with us, and I don't think that's how she passed. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I just, it was, it's such a great memory to have because it's delicious. And, uh, and by the way, I still haven't tried, tried snails. Um, that's okay. That's okay. And there are no there are no boilings of the peoples on this show. Just want to no, make, make no, that clear. Make no, that clear. Um, well, not an advocate for that. But wait, I, I was trying to ask myself, like, while I was talking, because I do that sometimes, I was trying to ask myself, why am I talking about this? And I remember, mm -hmm. because what I started to tell you before I derailed myself with the Julia Childs conversation, was that uh, the other thing that I did on the back page of Mother Jones Magazine many years ago was the editor would give me an assignment and I would go, you know, do whatever they said. And one time they sent me to the Nixon Museum 
And uh, it was it was fascinating, in part because they were telling a story in the Nixon Museum that wasn't really true. Um, but they didn't do it. Okay, here's probably the most glaring example of what I'm trying to say, which is this. There was one exhibit where you literally sit in a chair and you put a headphones on, right? Right. And they have the, the audio tape, the damning audio tape of, was it Haldeman he was talking to, I think, when he says to uh, keep the FBI away from, you know, what it was the, you know, the cover-up tape. Right. And the, the thing that really sunk him. And uh, so as you're listening to this tape, and it's kind of fascinating because the truth is prior to that time in our history, you never heard a president just talking. You always heard them making speeches or at a you know press conference. You never heard like a casual conversation or, a, you know, from a, a president. So it was sort of fascinating to hear Nixon just talking to somebody in his office. Um, there was that. But then, so you're listening to this conversation and Nixon says, you know, keep the FBI out of this or something like that. And then another voice comes on, a narrator, like that that the museum put there, right. that says what the president meant was. And then they change the meaning, you know, right. of what, what he said. And, and it was shocking. And I remember that. I wrote about this in the article. And then a few years later, there was a story in the LA times that basically said that the, you know, that the people at the Nixon museum had were, were going to make some changes. Uh, you know, basically it was, they, they got somewhere along the way, somebody noticed and they decided to maybe, you know, craft a more honest, <laughs> maybe they took the narrator's voice out. I what the president meant was, right. Well, I want to I want to uh, bring bring back a thread that you that you sort of started earlier. We'll re-rail the rail here, um, if you will. I was going to um, <laughs> say, I don't know if that's possible. That's the thing. We're going to do our best. We're going to do our best. But you talked about like we're, we're talking about like changing audiences a little bit, like how it's a yeah. lot more homogenous now compared to compared to before. And sometimes you like it, sometimes you don't, depending on the night. Do you do you find audiences, um, do they do you think they find more value in comedy that's not offensive? Because I asked this because I think you've also said before that you're never a fan of the type of comedy that would make people feel bad. Do you feel especially if that especially holds true today? Well, I mean, it's never my, that was sort of a sanctimonious thing of me to say, and I'm sure I said it. So I've never, in, I, I don't intend to make anybody feel bad. I probably, I probably have at one time or another. Um, I think probably where that came from was there was very much a trend um, when I started out. I mean, let's face it, uh, America has made some advancements. Maybe in the last few years, we've kind of had a stutter step. Um, but um, I started in 79 and there were there were a tremendous amount of. Uh, let's see, un, uninformed, uh, you know, from my brethren, uh, you know, gay jokes, uh, 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 jokes about race, uh, you know. And, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that. 
I have mixed feelings on this topic. Part sure. of me feels like, well, we don't we don't have to walk through the world incredibly thin skinned where we can't take a joke about something, you know, personal to us. Right. But I think that I also think that there were people back in like the early 80s. Let's just take San Francisco, where I worked for uh, a few years. I lived there for a few years, um, you know. I don't know. I don't want to shock people, but there's a big gay community in San Francisco. And right. I feel like here these people had left wherever they used to live, right? Moved to San Francisco to have this uh, environment where they could feel more like themselves. And now they go into a comedy club and, you know, and they're sort of assaulted with not always, uh, not always even funny gay jokes. And so I, I noticed that, like, I, I, I don't notice everything. Uh, I'm a little dense sometimes. I, I, can't, I barely can pick up a hint, um, but I noticed that. And as a young performer, I said to myself, you know, I would really like my shows to be a place where people don't have to worry mm-hmm. that the, you know, that the performer is all of a sudden gonna, you know, right. I don't know, just, make them feel horrible. And again, I don't think it means that we have to go through life, uh, you you know, uh, overreacting to every last thing that gets said. Um, It's a, mm, you know, I guess it's a, it's like a cooking thing, season to taste. Well, there you go. So how much salt, how much pepper, how much butter, you know, Julia Childs would use, uh, I think is uh, what we... Well, and you mentioned earlier, too, that you saw a lot of these changes uh, in the last couple of years. And I think one of the biggest changes probably is the pandemic and the lockdown and how that has really impacted our lives in, in multiple ways. So can you can you talk about, you know, how has that impacted live comedy? You think, you know, are you seeing more people anxious to come out and have a laugh? Or are you seeing more people who who want to come out because they need to have that laugh? I think the former, I mean, I, mm. for, for me anyway, it's interesting when, um, okay, during the stay at home order, which was for theaters, 15 months, I think. Um, I did two jobs, you know, on the road during that 15 months. One was in Alexandria, Virginia, and the other was in Agunquit, Maine. And the reason I was able to do those two jobs during the stay at home order uh, was that I do about four clubs, four or five clubs a year, um, and they are music clubs. And outside of that, I only do theaters. Theaters were not allowed to have people, but for for whatever reason, the rules were different for a club that served food. So I worked at these two places, and it was sort of a it was sort of a funny experiment almost. Um, uh, in Alexandria, um, I, re- I in both places, I really struggled to sell tickets. Mm-hmm. Um, and the capacity, you'll remember this period of time where they would say, well, okay, okay, that place can be open, but it can't be full. So even with a reduced capacity, um, they, and, the, and they couldn't seat people beside each other, like... The tables had to be spaced way apart, um, which, by the way, is just a terrible format for comedy. Um, but uh, so so I go into Alexandria, Virginia, which I usually do this club for 
I usually do it for two nights. I used to sometimes even do it for three. And, uh, you know, it was like uh, the reason they had me in that much um, in a row was because the, the show sold out. It was very, you know, successful. But now I go in during the stay-at-home order. And, I mean, I could barely sell any tickets, even with the reduced capacity. And what they told me was that the shows that they were doing that were successful were country western shows. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, country music shows. And what you know, if we can, it's not a huge data, you know, data point, but I think it's easy enough to gather from that that um, the more right wingers were were fine with going out and my crowd not so much so during that time and by the way with good reason uh, uh i i you know I, I when i first started back out again in theaters after they opened things up again um i, I had big arguments with my agents about what rules i wanted to make with the theater and they're like, well, we don't want to tell people that, you know, they have to wear masks. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but I don't want to kill my audience. I was thinking <laughs> that it made sense both from a humanitarian point of view and from a business point of view to keep them alive really for as long as we can. Well, not killing your audience and not boiling your audience are probably two pretty good rules of thumb to follow. These are, like. Yeah. Yeah. This kind of stuff that should be on T-shirts, just so we don't forget. <laughs> we like doing bumper stickers here, so maybe we're going to work on that right after this show. And I want to talk to you too, is, you know, talking about like audience engagement because that's such a huge part of your of your comedy. So, like, I imagine that was that suffered a little bit um, during the pandemic, oh and and you know, so how, difficult. How did you how did you work through that? And I, I definitely want to talk more about how that plays into your your regular comedy acts. Well, for one thing, there were days where I just Snoopy cried. I don't know if you're too young no. to know what a, a Snoopy cry I'm is. I'm a huge Peanuts fan, so you really just you just stuck it into my heart with the Snoopy You remember Snoopy cry. how yes. his, his tears had like an arc? Yeah. They would come out the side of his uh, eyes yeah. and they would bound up. Yeah. And his cry and is absolutely down. devastating. Yeah. <laughs> exactly like that. As we're laughing, yeah. but he's oh, crying. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I Snoopy cried. Um, not a lot, but sometimes. And when I wasn't Snoopy crying, I felt like it. Um, you know, one day, uh, here's something that I learned. And again, the thing about the stay-at-home order uh, was that it was, oddly, it was kind of this weird social experiment, um, you know, the conditions of which you really couldn't have put together in, in any other way. Um, and, and a lot of what we learned was pretty how much we need each other, mm. um, even though people are sort of reluctant to admit that that was a lesson. But one of the things is, and again, it, listen, if COVID um, it, 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 I mean, we're, I hate it when people say like, oh, when COVID, uh, before COVID was over. Like, I don't know where anybody's getting that idea. COVID is not over. Um, COVID is not, uh, we are 
coping in a different way than we did in the beginning. Um, but I had it in uh, the end of September um, because it was in between the fifth vaccine and the and the sixth. And uh, and I got nailed. Um, I fortunately I don't have long COVID, thank goodness, which I really fear. Um, but it, you know the people go, oh, it's just like a cold. Ah, uh-uh. not for me, anyways. It was it was brutal. Um, I felt like uh, the worst part was the body aches. When I was a kid, my older sister had a Barbie doll, and it was the generation of Barbie where her her leg rotated in her hip socket, and. Uh, you know, my sister didn't want me touching her Barbie dolls, but when she was gone, I would. I would go into her closet and get the Barbie doll out, and I would rotate Barbie's leg in her hip socket. And looking back, I realized it was probably very painful to Barbie, uh, but I didn't care about that then. Mm. Um, you, you learn about that empathy a little got, later, but it's better that you learn yeah, eventually. It. Yeah, yeah. So, but so when I had COVID, and I was like, just like really, really had terrible body aches, and my hips hurt so much. And I thought, you know what? This is the ghost of Barbie returned. And while I'm sleeping, she is rotating my hips in their socket or my legs in their hip socket. Has that, has um, that, has that made it into an act yet? No, I, maybe. I can't remember. Maybe. Right. I might have said it once or twice on stage. Okay. So you know how I jump around conversationally? No. I don't know if you've noticed. I have not, actually. Um, no, absolutely not. Th- this is, um, well, it's a negative. It's not good that I do that. I wish I didn't do that because I do it in every conversation. I do it when I'm talking with friends. I do it when I'm talking with strangers, which is probably where I see the most raised eyebrows, um, where, you know, the clerk at the CVS has zero idea of why I'm saying what I'm saying to them because they don't see the thread. Um, but I, I I succumbed to this trait um, on stage. I don't know probably a few months after I'd started working after I'd started as a comic because I, because I can't help it. Uh, and so what happens is anything that gets said reminds me of yet one more thing. And I literally feel that I must say that thing. There's a compulsion to it. I mean, there's Um, the, there's a squirrel brain aspect to it that I really appreciate because isn't that the reason why you really started to, to go and and work with the audience versus coming on stage with a script. So tell me more about that. You know, what is it about the audience and what actually, what catches your eye? You know, is this somebody (laughs) standing up going to the bathroom that you're like, Hey, you, you know, I want to talk to you about whatever the thing is. Every now and then it's that. Um, I'll, okay, I'll tell you. Now, most for the most part, I actually can't see the audience. I can only see maybe the front row. And some theaters like uh, uh, start to go on and they'll have the lights up. And I'll say to them, like, could you lower the lights? And they tell me later that, if, oh, they did that because they thought I wanted to see everyone for just that reason. But I feel that makes the audience feel like they're being grilled. Um, so I'm like, no, no, put the lights down. Thanks. Um, but oftentimes I can't really see all that well individuals, but I'll hear a reaction, I think, from somebody sometimes. I, I don't like to just talk to the people in the front. That uh, There's something about that that doesn't feel right to me. So I'll hear a reaction or I'll ask, I'll ask a question. Oftentimes that was intended to be rhetorical. And, uh, you know, somebody will make a comment or I'll just hear a comment or I'll hear uh, you know, a late laugh. That's a big one. Um, when I can see kind of deeper into the crowd, maybe because my eyes have adjusted a little bit. Uh, if there's someone sitting with their arms crossed, which 
tends to be the men. I often wonder, uh, like if it's a couple, for example, a man and a woman, I often wonder what was the conversation that went into getting the tickets? Mm. Was it like, okay, uh, did the woman have to say to him, you know, I'll watch a stupid football game with you uh, in order to get him to come to this? But, you know, what's interesting is I read that body language and I say to myself, and it eats away at the side of my head while I'm talking on a different topic entirely because I kind of keep seeing this guy with his arms crossed across the room from me, and I keep thinking, he hates me. Well, he did just you, did, you, me. did you ever get an answer? Yes, yes. And once I get talking to them, the guy is delighted, <laughs>, laughs, having the best time. You know, you have a tendency as a performer, I think, uh, you know, we all want to be liked. Right. Everybody, no matter who you are, you want to be liked. You're looking for approval from the get-go. That's how we get... <clears throat> That's how we get social norms. Uh, that's how you train a dog. That's how you, you, you know, that's why kids uh, that are, you know, three and four years old in preschool can line up um, is that we all want to be liked and accepted. And and so as a performer, when you're on stage, you know, there is a, a part of me anyways that is forever sort of you know, measuring, trying to feel like trying to trying to figure out whether or not that's the relationship that I'm having. Are these people, you know, liking me? And so obviously as a comic, the one response that you're looking for is laughter, which is different than being a musician. You can have all sorts of reactions if you're a musician. Um, but as a comic, there's that one thing. You don't have that one thing. Guess what? You failed. Um so you realize but, you realize the arm crossing was not personal. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And the other thing is you can do a show sometimes and I've had this experience so many times and the the and it, it's I don't learn the lesson from it somehow, which is I can do a show where people just don't seem to be responding. It just feels like a heavy lift, you know? You know, they do laugh, but it's not the big, robust laugh. It's not the sort of waves of laughter where um, it's so easy to go on to the next thing and the next thing because they didn't even finish laughing from the last thing. And it just the whole thing feels like this big, wild, you know, celebration of words and ideas um, and and connection and who we are as human beings. And I feel like I really tapped into this thing. Uh, there are nights where that just doesn't happen. And every single thing that I say, I feel like I'm starting from the beginning again. And I feel like I'm really struggling. And of course, in my head, I say to myself, boy, they do not like me. And I come off stage and I usually do a meet and greet. Not always, but I often do. And I'll come off stage, not every time, but sometimes. And there's like this really long line and people come up and they want to hug me. And they say, I haven't laughed that hard and I don't know when. And I realize, you know what, for whatever reason, that crowd was responding with what they had to give. And because it doesn't fit into my idea, doesn't mean that they weren't having a good time. Right. You know, it's here's the thing. <laughs> it's not always about me. Paula Poundstone is a stand-up comedian and regular panelist on NPR's comedy news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. After the break, hear what happens when Paula's interaction with an audience member doesn't go as planned. From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. 
Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Paula Poundstone is a stand-up comedian and regular panelist on NPR's comedy news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. If you've seen Paula stand up on TV or maybe live in person, you know that talking with the audience is a big part of her routine. I asked her more about the unpredictability of these interactions. I am curious to hear, you know, because you, you ride this high, right, when you're, you, you're, you're bringing the element of surprise when you're engaging with the audience. Um, have you ever had moments where it's actually the audience's interaction that went in a completely different, different direction than you expected and completely caught you off guard? You know, what, was, what went through your head when that moment happened? Which I'm su- assuming has happened. Meaning well, like the audience says something? Yeah, like if they said something or reacted in a way that was not in your purview of expectation. Oh, I've had great, you know, my audience is really smart and fun. But, you know, again, you get talking to anybody and they're just terrific. I, I, I don't, you know, um, uh, I, I, I can't remember specifics right now, but oftentimes people say really funny things. Okay, so the other night, I forget where I was. Maybe, oh, maybe, I know where I was. Bozeman, Montana. And uh, they, the theater asked if I would do an intermission um, because they sell concession stands stuff and it helps their bottom line. If I do an intermission, it has zero to do with the show itself, whether an intermission is a good idea. Um, it's just strictly a financial thing. And I said, sure, I'll do that. Um, so I go on to the first half and I, there is a point in my show where I sometimes ask who's the youngest person here tonight. And, uh, it turned out it was a 15 year old and they were sitting um, close to the stage. And uh, um, eventually I started talking. I asked the 15-year-old a question and what turned out to be the 15-year-old's grandmother um, said to me, oh, she doesn't like to talk. Like meaning, you know, in that public, see the kid felt pressured and embarrassed in that situation. So I, I, I honored that, you know, I sort of turned away and I didn't, I didn't, ask her more questions. I did still talk to her, but I didn't ask her more questions because I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. And um, so now we do the, that was in the first half of the show. Now, now we do the, um, what was it? Uh, the intermission. And I come back after the intermission and I look to talk to the 15 year old and they're not there, but the grandmother is still there. And I go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, what happened to the 15 year old? She goes, 
Um, well, she had a dance to go to. She, she went to go to a dance. She said, sorry. I'm like, okay, first of all, there's no way that kid went to a dance. What, at 10 o'clock at night, she went to a dance? Um, you, were, you were a stopover, literally. Yeah, yeah. It, it, was a, it made for a very fun right. uh, conversation. Sure. I, I mean, I'm not surprised that the 15-year-old dumped me. But uh, but the but the idea I I still worry for her safety if she went to a dance at ten o'clock at night. And, and you know, with with experiences like that, because it's it's so unique, right? And as we as we talked about earlier, you know, after after a forty plus year career, can you talk about you know what keeps you coming back and performing and, and continuing to come on tour? You know, you've been to Connecticut multiple times too. You know, what what brings you back here? What 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 about the stage or the people that you're like? I got to keep doing this. Well, first of all, I have the best job in the entire world. And I'm going to wait, I'm opening my soda. All right. <clears throat> so I have to confess something. There is a possibility, and it's just a possibility. I'm not certain of this. <clears throat> There's no evidence of it. It can't be proven. But there is a possibility that prior to the arrival of COVID in the stay-at-home order, I may have, and I, I, I really want to stress I may have whined occasionally about the travel. Maybe. I'm not saying I did. I'm saying I may have whined about the travel. Um, the part of being on stage is such a delight. It's transformative. It's like you lose um, you, you lose the where. It doesn't matter where you are. It's just, it is just so delightful and i've been on stage in every condition there is you know i've been exhausted i've been sick I i've been um you know stressed uh uh and none of it matters when you know when you it, it, it's like you're you, you know you're in a bubble flying away from everything um and at this point, now that I had this experience of the stay-at-home order, um, I, you can put me in the overhead compartment. I don't care. I, I, I don't care about the travel. It doesn't bother me even a little bit. I'm happy to be with an audience. One of the things that happened during the stay-at-home order, and again, if, if COVID or any other mm, pandemic requires that in order to save lives, we stay at home and we don't get to go to theaters and I don't get to do my job, then then so be it. I, I, I would be in support of that if that's what was necessary to save lives. Um, having said that, one of the things that I think that we had taken for granted for a really long time, just as a species, is I I would guess I'm not I'm not an anthropologist I'm not even a historian um, but I would guess that when we were in the caves um, you know doing like the cave painting and stuff and by the way there's gotta have been some bad cave painting every time someone find, finds cave painting they're like oh look at this it's amazing it's cave painting but if you lived back then. There had to be bad cave painting. I mean, 10,000 10, years later, they're going to look at a Van Gogh and be like, what is this? No, I think it's the other way around. 
think if enough years pass, everybody goes, my God, this is fantastic. Whereas at the time, you know, when Ugg first painted on the set, they, they probably went, yeah, that's not very good. And there had to have been at least one time where he meant to do a wildebeest and he had to turn it into a buffalo at least once. Um, but I think that when, when we're in the caves, surely someone stood up around the fire and told stories. So this idea of being an audience and having um, a sort of communal emotional reaction to a show, right? Whether it was uh, music, uh, uh, a story, uh, whether someone's acting something out, uh, sort of take that to the modern day, whether you go see a concert, whether you go see a comedy show, whether you go see a dance show, uh, you're having a communal reaction, right, um, to something in front of you. It makes you feel so human to have the same reaction as someone else. Especially, I remember one time, there was somebody that I heard do this bit about something that I had always been uh, so shy about. It was something that I was really embarrassed about in myself. And I heard somebody talk about this thing on stage. Well, I laughed until I cried because I was like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one who had that thing. Mm -hmm. And it turns out it's a very common thing. So we have this communal experience as a group. And when, when the theaters were shut down out of concern for our communal safety, when the theaters were shut down, we lost that opportunity. And there's no other way of doing that. You know, when someone um, reads something or looks at a video online and they type in LOL, I can almost guarantee you that's a lie. Because you just don't laugh at things when you're by yourself. Y you smile. You may acknowledge in your head that you think it's funny, but you don't. You don't laugh because there's nobody standing beside you. And, uh, and coming but, coming out of that isolation, I think for the most part, it was such an extreme experience. I think for for a lot of people, does that change the way you see comedy? Especially, you know, talking about that communal reaction. You know, I really enjoy that in the theater as well, and in the movies when when you hear people reacting to things or you're laughing at the same joke. Yeah. There's that one person that laughs at that one thing that's super awkward, but you think it's funny um, because they laugh. Yeah. Um, you know, has that changed, you think? Or do you think it's more important now that we do have those communal reactions? You know, what are your thoughts about that? I, I just think I've, I, for one, came to appreciate it. And I think other people did too. And I don't just mean as a performer, I mean as an audience member. At one point, my, my friend, uh, the great Nils Lofgren, um, during the stay-at-home order, he posted a, a, a video of a Bruce Springsteen concert because Nils plays with Bruce Springsteen. And it wasn't, it was a concert from a long time ago because we weren't having concerts right then. So he just posted it to post it. And I, I looked at, at, and there were a lot of audience shots. I think there was a shot of the audience like passing Bruce Springsteen over their heads. Um, there were a lot of audience shots and people were just having so much fun. And I looked at that video and I think Nils sent it out to cheer people up, but I looked at it and I just, I just burst into Snoopy crying uh, because I realized like, oh my God, I miss that so, so much. It's an important part of who we are. And, you know, like I, 
I do things alone a lot. Like, um, yeah, excuse me, I'll go to the movies alone. Or, uh, I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to like a show somewhere because I work a lot. Um, but, oh, I know, a year ago, I went to see Funny Girl in New York City by myself. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm not infrequently uh, go to things with strangers. Um, so it's it's not that you have to be with people that you know to have this experience. Right. Um, I think that one of the things we do as a society, again, is just so take for granted um, the people that we don't, you know, it's like that great, uh, who are the people in your neighborhood? Uh, we, we're not, we think that we can replace people with machines uh, in jobs like the self-checkout, for example, at a store. I think is a terrible mistake. I think those moments, and I as a person who spends a lot of time alone because I travel for a living, um, those moments where I'm buying, you know, some more <laughs> diet soda and another bag of Pepperidge Farm cookies with even less cookies in them than the day before when I bought them. Um, uh, those moments where there's a checkout person and I say, Oh my God, the rain is killing me. And they go, Oh yeah, yeah, that's been, you know, that's where I go, is, you know, is it flooded where you are? No, no, it's not flooded where I am. I go, well, you know, I'm lucky it's not flooded where I am either. Uh, listen, thanks. Good talking to you. You're hearing Paula Poundstone, who's a stand up comedian and host of the comedy podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. She's performing at the Infinity Music Hall in Hartford this Saturday, and she's with us for the hour today. This is where we live. Stay with us. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Hi, I'm Ray Hartman. Season three of Where Art Thou is just around the corner. I'll be back on the road meeting incredible Connecticut artists. You'll hear their stories and we'll throw in a few surprises as well. Season three of Where Art Thou premieres June 9th on CPTV. For more, visit ctpublic.org slash WAT. Support provided by the Richard P. Garmini Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the State of Connecticut Office of Film, Television, and Digital Media, and Connecticut Humanities. Today, I'm talking to stand-up comedian Paula Poundstone. She'll be performing at the Infinity Music Hall in Hartford this Saturday. And in this final part of our conversation, I asked her about trying out new material. How, how do you test jokes? You know, are there any topics off the table for you? I'm, I'm, I'm also just picturing you, you're kind of just absorbing your daily routines and any of that can turn into a piece of comedy. I feel like I have kind of a Roomba in my head. <laughs> that's a great description. Yeah, that's yeah. always sort of going around looking for something. Um, but I I don't know the rate at which I, you know, there are times where I, I'm more prolific than others, I guess. But I always, um, you know, I mentioned that I do Alexandria, Virginia. I do a, a couple nights in a row when I'm there. Uh, and it's the only place where I do that. Usually I'm just, well, that's not true. I was just on Vashon Island off of Seattle and I did two nights there. Generally speaking, I only do one night in a location, uh, uh, you know, and then I come back a year later or two years later. Um, but this thing where I'm in a place for more than one night, I have occasionally had audience members come up to me and say, uh, like in Alexandria, people come and say, we came all three nights. 
And mm-hmm. I'm always like, <laughs> my first reaction is to be like terrified when they say that because I go, how was it? <laughs> they say it was a different show every night, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that I don't repeat some of the same stuff. Sure. Um, because certainly I do. I've been doing the International House of Pancakes joke for 45 years. Uh, uh, um, it, it, but I do, I am in a constant process of folding in new ingredients. Um, I, I test stuff out by just saying it when I can think of saying it on stage. The, the, the hardest thing I have is just remembering. Um, I've for a long time had trouble with my memory. Right. And, uh, in a, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's just hard to remember to, to do the new thing. So I usually put it in pretty close to the beginning because otherwise I'll just get, I think it's just a map. I don't think, I don't think it's like a early Alzheimer's or anything like that. I think it's just stress and, uh, it causes me to not, you know, not hang on to things sometimes, right. um, mentally. Well, and it's it, this is incredible for me to say right now, but we've only got about a minute left. So uh, I can't believe that. I know this scrolling is just scrolling away still. But <laughs> I do want to talk about the fact that you're coming back to Hartford. Um, is there anything you look forward to when you when you come to Connecticut? Because you've been here multiple times. And I think, we, uh, I have. yeah, you had an interview with the Hartford Current where you mentioned the Lego model of the Mark Twain house. No, tell oh, me. Oh yeah, yeah. What about the Lego uh, model of the of the house? You know, well, it's just the coolest thing. It, it Plus, really I is. Have been, I've been to the Mark Twain uh, uh, house, and I was at one of the inaugural events for the uh, relatively new building. I think um, near that. I don't know what it's called, but it's the building that has the marble. some sort of community center. It's the building that has the a lot of marbly surfaces inside, and it has the it has the slide of Mark Twain uh, in the white suit going up the wall. Do you know what building I'm talking about? I'm trying to rack my brain right now. I cannot. I'm also a horrible test taker, so you're actually just catching me at a bad time. But we will get oh, into sorry. that. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Okay. No. So there's some sort of new. I, I, when I say new, it's actually been several years since I was there, so it can't be that new, I guess. But there's some sort of community center real near there. Um, and it's like the, you know, the Mark Twain, blah, blah, blah center. And I was there for some sort of inaugural event uh, performing there. And then it was late at night. And they said to me um, after the show, they said, do you want a tour of the Mark Twain house? And I'm like, you know, yeah, talk to me into it. Um, so I've been there. And uh, mostly I think, you know, I'm from Massachusetts originally. Right. And it's just it's it just feels good. And I know that people in the other New England states hate Massachusetts. I gather that. Um, But that's okay. I set that aside. Um, But it's it's just nice to get up and breathe the New England air. Um, A lot of times when I'm up that way, I'll take a train um, from one location to another. And so I've had that great um, coastline, coastline slash industrial section of Connecticut train ride. That's so unbelievable. The Amtrak one. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like if if I'm in Connecticut, I'm, I'm close enough to my people. I'm, I'm one border away from my people. They're not big states. How different can we be? 
Well, I think that's a beautiful sentiment to end this on. Paula, it's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to Paula Poundstone, who is performing at the Infinity Hartford on February 24th. Thank you so much, Paula, for joining us and spending time with us today. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you. That was Paula Poundstone, stand-up comedian, host of the comedy podcast, Nobody Listens to Paula Poundstone. She's also a regular panelist on NPR's comedy news quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. You can experience her comedy firsthand this weekend. She'll be performing at the Infinity Music Hall in Hartford on Saturday. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible and Meg Dalton. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.